What a blessing it is to come into the house of the Lord just as we are, no pretense, whatever good, bad, and ugly has happened to us this week. We bring it all to the Lord today, knowing that he accepts us more than we could ever imagine. He knows every hair on our head. He knows every word before it's on our tongue, and he still takes us just as we are. We have a lot of guests here today. I know a lot of folks are in town. Todd, great to have you back here today as well. And Missy, we've been praying for you and, and your family. How many of you are in town for the convention? I met a family from Laurel, Mississippi. Here we go. Excellent preachers here. And, and of course, uh, the Wayman family here. Uh, it's been a hard year for, for pastors and a weird year for Baptists. If you've read today's paper, you see that. And just be praying for um, the eight messengers from our church. Will you please stand? I see Brad and Marcus and Braden. And, uh, yeah, Marcus is back there, Brad. Uh, Logan and Christy Newton. Christy's working right now at the convention. We are sending eight messengers to the Southern Baptist Convention at the Music City Center here in Nashville. I've never been. I confess to my friends here from Laurel. You've, how many have you been to? 20. 20, give or take. Uh, just pray for our, you know, denomination and our affiliation and that we would be better together for the kingdom. That's my prayer, is that we would uh, elevate Christ, make him known more than anything else, and that uh, he would be the focus of all of our attention and our affections, which is hard during business meeting, I know. But uh, just pray for... Um, all the, 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 the garbage and, and the, the junk that has come up with Southern Baptist right now. We need to just bathe this whole thing in prayer, which I hope you're already doing. Thanks, Aaron. Most Saturday mornings, I love to get up with my kids and uh, take them to Donut Den just down the road. While you're here from Laurel, you might want to check it out. Uh, just about a half mile down that way. Uh, delicious and nutritious. Not really nutritious, but uh, we love to, to go in there and get donuts. And sometimes it's a little more crowded than others. And you know, with all these COVID protocols. It's like, are we, are we doing this or not? Are we, are we too close? Are there too many people? Should we go in? Should we wait? And then you get in there and there's a bajillion donuts to choose from. And everybody, you know, it gets a little stressed, maybe a little panicked about what donuts you're going to get because there's only two or three. And there's a funny comedian, Brian Regan, who does a bit about the, the, the indecisive guy who goes into donut place. And he, he said, I feel so bad for the workers there because people just can't make up their minds. I don't know what it is about buying donuts, but people panic. They go in there, okay, okay, I need a dozen donuts. All right, man, you got a lot of donuts. I'm gonna start with four chocolate. I want two twisty goos. I want a lemon Twitter. I want a honey world. No, two honey worlds. I want a raspberry double puff. No, I want a half Twitter and a raspberry curl. And I want two chocolate. No, no, one, one, put it back. I want a Bavarian apple crunch. I want the crunch. Hey, man, why don't you relax? The worker says, just go outside and maybe think it over. It's a tough decision. You don't want to blow it. You don't want to blow donut day. It's Saturday. You don't want to blow donut day. Sometimes Jude and I will quote that as he, I don't know what to get. I'm like, hey man, relax. Maybe you need to go outside and think it over. The prophet Isaiah has been showing us over these last few weeks that all of us are a little shaky in our decision making. That all of us tend to be a little indecisive when it comes to picking which path. Our theme for this month is about two outcomes, two choices, two outcomes. Trusting in the Lord versus trusting in the world. 
We all are faced with these choices. We've been seeing that through Isaiah, but today we're going to see that it comes to a head. It comes to a conclusion. Isaiah kind of points, us, uh, points to us directly and says, okay, now it's time to choose. We're no longer talking about Assyria invading Jerusalem. We're, we're zooming out to a global perspective now on all the world, that the entire world, including you and me, are faced with a choice. Which way will we go? Last week, we saw how sometimes it takes hitting rock bottom before you realize your need for a savior. We're, we're going to talk about how we have a faithful savior who's been standing by waiting to enter our lives with his grace, ready to serve as a faithful ally, no matter what we're going through. And yet, so many times we choose to go the way of the world. And, and what we've been talking about is this false god of self-sufficiency or counterfeit gods of the world that we're tempted to run towards. I know our women are doing a study on Elijah right now, and they talked about idols um, this week. We had over, I think, 40 women that participated in our women's Bible study, which is great, uh, this week. And how we run to these counterfeit false gods for our salvation. So Isaiah is calling us to give up that idol, to smash that idol, to throw it out, the idol of self-sufficiency, the idol of worldly saviors. And now, again, we're at the conclusion of this whole section, really since uh, Dr. Sherman preached on chapter 6, up in, from chapter 7 until uh, chapter 35. This is kind of the, the culmination of this whole section. And, and what you're going to see is chapter 34, which is what happens when you choose to go the way of the world. When you reject the Lord, when you reject his grace, when you reject his kingdom, when you reject his ways. And I'll give you a clue. It's, it's not pretty, okay? Chapter 34 is a brutal description of a place that none of us want to be in. As John Piper says, no one stands at the edge of the lake of fire and jumps. It's not like anyone wants hell. What we want is our way. What we want is sin. What we want is our own choices over God's choices. And the inevitable result is judgment. As awful as chapter 34 is, though, stick with us, because 35 is equally and even more so beautiful. It's a chapter of grace. The biblical scholar Alec Motyer calls chapter 35 one of the most beautiful poems ever written. So together, these two chapters describe two different ultimate realities, two different final outcomes that are the result of either choosing, again, the ways of this world or choosing the ways of God. One chapter is a stark warning. The other chapter is a beautiful promise of hope. We have to hold both of those in tension because they both point us to the reality of eternity. I, I know it's not a popular topic. Nobody likes to talk about heaven and hell as like actual realities. But if we're going to be people of the Bible, the Bible describes these ultimate realities of heaven and hell. And yes, there is heaven and hell on earth. People do make earth more hellish, and there are hellish consequences on earth. All that's true. But ultimately, we are spiritual beings. 
And there's a spiritual reality to this life that goes beyond this life. We call those ultimate realities heaven and hell. It's really important to remember that there is an ultimate reality to begin with. Jonathan Edwards, the Puritan preacher, prayed this prayer. I think of it all the time. He said, Lord, stamp eternity on my eyeballs. Stamp eternity on my eyeballs. I want to constantly see the world through the lens of eternity. I want to constantly be reminded that this world is not my home, that this life is merely a mist, a vapor that's here today and gone tomorrow, a candle that is quickly snuffed out. The more funerals I do, the more I'm learning. This life is short. This life is, is incredibly short. And what we're going to see is the, the clear trajectory of people in this life of, towards eternity. But our focus and our attention is too often on what people call the tyranny of the urgent. Have you heard that? The urgent tends to dominate our lives and what we spend our uh, affection and attention on. But the, this life is just the introduction, though, to a fuller story. That's the important part for us today is how then shall we live in light of eternity? And here's the really sobering truth. The trajectory that our lives are on now in this life is the trajectory that they will be on for eternity. That's the really sobering reality. That terrifies some of you, I know, and I don't, I don't want to be that doom and gloom, you know, I'm not the fire and brimstone kind of guy, but these are truths we see in Scripture that we must take seriously. And some of you say, well, what if God doesn't save me? What if I'm already too far gone? What if God doesn't want anything to do with me? What if the trajectory of my life is, is currently on track with bitterness and anger and jealousy and lust and pride and greed? What if I really don't have any kind of prayer life? What if I'm so far from the Lord right now? There's good news. There's good news. No one can fall too far. No one is outside of the reach of God's grace. And here's the thing. God wants to save you and he can save you. The name Isaiah means God saves. It's what he does. He loves to save and he can and he wants to. He stands by willing and waiting to save all those who will come to him. You were made to be his child and to enjoy intimacy with a good, good father forever. Ezekiel chapter 33 expresses the heart of the Lord. He says to the prophet, say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? The Lord pleads with his children to come to him for salvation because he can save and he delights in the return of his children. So as we walk through our text for today, we're going to see this clear choice between judgment and joy. Chapter 35 is permeated by joy. And chapter 34, as you see, will, as you will see, is permeated by judgment. Let's start with judgment. I almost said, let's start with the bad news. Here's the thing. 
For people who love the Lord, for people who are in Christ, God's judgment is not a bad thing. Most of us think of God's judgment as like Zeus sitting on some throne, throwing lightning bolts at us when we're bad, right? That's not the biblical picture of who God is or what his justice is about. God's judgment is really about making things right. God's judgment means setting the record straight. God's judgment is about justice. God's judgment is about correction. You know, it's when God finally steps in and says, enough, no more lying, no more cheating, no more stealing, no more oppressing the poor, no more violence, no more insecurity and anxiety and jealousy. It's time to, to make all the wrongs right. God's judgment is him dispensing justice. Therefore, we as God's people should long for it. We should invite God's judgment as a way of fixing things. We should tell others about it because it is loving and right to do so. It is not loving to not tell people the truth about God's judgment. So let's start with judgment in verse 1 of chapter 34. Just buckle up. We're going to get to chapter 35. I promise. Chapter 34, verse 1 says, Draw near, O nations. Now it's the whole world, all nations, to hear and give attention, O peoples. He's talking to the whole world. Let the earth hear and all that fills it, the world and all that comes from it. When God says he's bringing judgment to the world, that's not his first word to the world. It's not like, hey guys, I'm coming to judge you. That's not the first thing he says. We know from earlier in Isaiah that God has already warned the world about sin. He has shown people their own iniquity, what is separating them from himself. He has shown us what is good, what is right. What is life-giving? What leads to flourishing and thriving? He's even shown us that he's willing and wanting to forgive us and to cover over our sins and to dispense grace upon grace. But eventually, time is up. Eventually, his patience wears out and judgment day comes. And at the end, he comes with great anger, I know you who've been parents know the kind of exasperation that can only come from your beloved children who you love so dearly, who have just worn out your every last nerve and it just drives you crazy. That's the kind of anger that the Lord comes with. Look at verse two. He wants us to obey. He wants us to do right because he loves us so much. And he's been holding back this anger for so long, but not anymore. For the Lord is enraged against all the nations and furious against all their hosts. He has devoted them to destruction, has given them over for slaughter. God's patience, great as it may be, will come to an end. And the result's not going to be pretty. God cannot abide sin. He is a holy and just God. But sin has had a good run, but its time is over. When this day comes, I mean, how many lives have been wrecked by sin? How many lives have been ruined? You know, God's whole good creation. In my Sunday school class today, we talked about uh, the fall of creation, not just the fall of humans, the fall of the whole world. 
sin has ruined God's formerly good creation long enough, but not anymore. Not on this day. A great reckoning will come. I thought about skipping verse 3, but it's kind of amazing. Let's look at verse 3. Their slain shall be cast out, and the stench of their corpses shall rise. The mountains shall flow with their blood. The Hebrew word for flow here means melt. And, and one biblical commentator that I read says that this is a mudslide of human blood. I told Knox last night to listen for that phrase. Mudslide of human blood. There you go, buddy. Verse 3. The Bible's not rated PG, is it? The Bible is not sparing, it's not pulling any punches when it comes to God's wrath against sin. As the Apostle Paul writes, I mean, this is Old Testament and New Testament, guys. Romans 6.23, you probably read this at Vacation Bible School. The wages of sin is death. What sin earns, what it deserves, is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We've heard that verse maybe a thousand times, but do we really get it? Do we really understand what it's saying, how powerful that is? Someone must pay what sin earns. Someone must pay the wages of sin. Otherwise, God would not be just. God doesn't just let it slide. He doesn't just turn the other way and say, just do it quickly. That's not who God is. He's a God of justice. Either Christ has died for someone's sin or they themselves will die for their sin. Either way, the price will be paid. Look at verse 6. The Lord has a sword. It is sated with blood. It's gorged with fat from the blood of lambs and goats. Sacrifices with the fat of the kidneys of rams. For the Lord has a sacrifice in Basra, a great slaughter in the land of Edom. Basra was the capital city of Edom. Edom was the ancient enemy of Israel just on the eastern side of the Jordan River across from God's people. Edom, Edom stands here as a representative for all the pagan people of the world who have rejected God, who have rejected God's people, and who have rejected God's kingdom. And you know how state legislatures will often proclaim that a certain day is set aside for someone or, or somebody? Have you heard this before? I don't know if, if NES has a Leonard Leach Day or something, uh, Leonard, but uh, you know, these famous people throughout history. In Tennessee, June 23rd is Wilma Rudolph Day. Did you know that? March 15th is Andrew Jackson Day. Well, the Lord also has a day. The Lord has a day. Look at verse 8. For the Lord has a day of vengeance. A year. He doesn't just have a day. He's got a whole year of recompense of payback for the cause of Zion. Again, he's not just judging sin, he's standing up for his people. It says it's for the cause of Zion. He is defending the cause of his people. That's a, a beautiful promise that he will vindicate his children on that day. And that day is coming when Jesus breaks back into our world with a billion angels with flaming swords swirling behind him, just waiting to enter into this world to finish the work of making all things new once and for all. The prophets refer to that as the day of the Lord, a day that's belonging to the Lord. And it will certainly be a great reckoning. All this impressive society that we built, I showed somebody our sanctuary on Wednesday night for the first time, and I said, they don't build them like they used to. 
This is a, a beautiful place. I love this sacred space. But guess what? It's not going to last. It's not forever. It's not going to stand on that day. All the impressive things that our world has built, all our great cities, all of our beautiful systems of government and of commerce and, and economics, all of the education systems, all of that will melt into a volcanic wasteland. Look at verse 9 and 10. And the streams of Edom shall be turned into pitch like tar and her soil into sulfur. Her land shall become burning pitch. Night and day it shall not be quenched. Its smoke shall go up forever. This is hellish language. This is the language of Sheol. This is the language of Gehenna. This is the language the Bible uses to talk about a place of eternal suffering apart from the Lord. Apart from the, the holy presence and the beauty and the glory of God. The triune God. The new heaven and new earth won't come together perfectly until the old heaven and old earth pass away in fire. We know that's coming. Isaiah tells us then that this hellish world is going to become like a rat-infested, condemned building. All kinds of creepy animals are going to dwell in it. I'm not going to read all of 11 to 15, but look at verse 13. 13 says, Thorns shall grow over its strongholds, nettles and thistles in its fortresses. It shall be the haunt of jackals. Cool band name, Logan, by the way. I think haunt of jackals might be a good band name. An abode for ostriches. Uh, this is a place that's creepy. And these animals, have you ever been to Safari Park and tried to feed an ostrich? It's not fun. It sounds like fun, but they try to bite you and they're scary because they're enormous, right? Not a good place to be. This is God deconstructing this world. He's, he's like a, a contractor who comes in to tear everything down as he unmakes everything that sin has corrupted. He's not slapping some paint on it. He's not, you know, getting out his duct tape and trying to patch it up. He's saying, we're starting over. There is no plan B. He will get the last word. He will not change his mind. This is coming. But there is hope. We're not going to end at chapter 34. We're going to end with chapter 35. There's opportunity for great joy in the midst of coming judgment. The burning desert of this fallen world can be transformed into a lush paradise, a new heaven and a new earth for those who have put their trust in the Lord. The trajectory of our lives, again, is either heading towards a burning desert wasteland or it's heading to a beautiful, productive garden. Jude convinced me to buy a tomato plant for the first time yesterday at Home Depot. It's already got a little green tomato on it. Farmer Nan back there is very excited about it. She's, <laughs> I can't wait to enjoy the bounty of our garden and eat the fruit of our labors. You know? We have a jalapeno that's growing on a jalapeno plant. No one in our family likes jalapenos except for me, but I can't wait to, to enjoy it. There's something about a garden that's beautiful and productive. And that's what the picture that we get of the new heaven and new earth is going to be. A beautiful place that is productive and bountiful. Therefore, each one of us has to decide where we put our ultimate heart hope. What are we betting our lives on? 
the outcome could not be any more starkly different. Look at chapter 35, verses 1 and 2. The wilderness and the dry land, the, the word for wilderness is also desert. And the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice. There's that joy word. And blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy. Literally, it will joy with joy. And singing the glory of Lebanon, that's the place where all the big forests were, a bountiful land, shall be given to it. The majesty of Mount Carmel. Y'all know that story from Elijah. And Sharon, these are beautiful places. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. You know, God's grace comes into our empty desert lives with a spring of living water. We bring nothing but our own dry and barren landscape. This again is why Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Matthew 5, 3, the Sermon on the Mount. Why are they blessed? Because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. How do the poor in spirit get the kingdom of heaven? Because they're spiritually bankrupt. They bring nothing to the table in and of themselves spiritually. And they receive the entire kingdom of heaven to fill them. Blessed, happy are those who have nothing spiritually, who realize their need for a savior. Desperation gives way to joy. Social media, you know, has become such an interesting phenomenon. I, I'm always tempted to get on there and tweet things, and I normally don't do that. Everyone has the opportunity to post pictures of how happy they are in this world, how successful they've become with their career or their family or their finances or whatever. And we tend to show ourselves laughing and having a great time to validate outwardly the trajectory that our lives have been on. But behind the scenes, we know that people who look happy often are not. Chapter 35 is pervaded by this sense of true, deep-seated, abiding, lasting joy. Salvation is not just having our spiritual needs met. Salvation is not just when we stop being bad. Salvation is when we delight in God's glory and in his beauty and in his perfect holiness, in his might, when he becomes the most beautiful and compelling thing to us in our world. What else could he be? If he has brought us from death to life, what else could he be? You know, we were talking about this a few weeks ago during our men's coffee hour, how new believers often have this incredible joy. They're just so grateful and so excited to have been redeemed by the blood of the lamb and brought into God's family. And they have this contagious enthusiasm that some of us who've been Christians for most of our lives, sometimes we lose that fervor and that energy and excitement. None of us should remember that the gospel, I mean, none of us should lose sight that the gospel is just as true for us now as it was when we became Christians like Major, when we were baptized. The good news is that God has covered over our sins. He has raised you and me to life in Christ and he's making all things new and that should lead us to a unshakable joy. 
I was watching Brad and Rachel and all those kids playing kickball in the rain. I was talking with Lil about it this morning. On Wednesday night, our kickball tournament at 5.30 when it was supposed to start, the, the heavens opened up and, and the waters poured. And I didn't stop Brad and Rachel from playing out there. And uh, they were just beaming and the kids were soaked and having a blast. And just a, a neat thing to see the joy of the Lord coming out in those kids, including the big kids. Let's remind ourselves today that the beauty of the gospel is real. Let's encourage one another with the goodness of who God is and what he's done for us. The reality of the outcome of our faith in Christ. Look at verse three, a call to encourage one another. Strengthen the weak hands. Make firm the feeble knees. We got lots of weak hands and feeble knees. When I read the headlines, I get weak. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. Remind each other of that good news. We have a living hope that the resources that are ours in Christ now are unbelievable. 1 Peter 1, 3, you know, says we've been born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. According to his great mercy, keep going. Go to the next one. He's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Keep going. To an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you by Jesus. Let's remind one another of that good news. If all we can look forward to is what we've experienced already in this life, then like Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, we of all people are most to be pitied. It's pathetic. But there's more for us in Christ than we can possibly comprehend. It's only going to get better each day as we learn to trust him more. Look at verse 5. Then the eyes of the blind shall be open and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Again, what do we contribute to this beautiful outcome? It's you and me who are lame and mute. All we bring to the table is our own blindness, our own deafness, our own lameness, our own inability to speak. And what does God bring? Sight, sound, agility, and joyful music. I love how Charles Wesley, the great hymn writer, uh, puts it in, oh, 4,000 tongues to sing, you know, the first verse of 4,000 tongues to sing, my dear Redeemer's praise, the glories of my God and King, the triumphs of his grace. There's a verse that's not in our hymnal that says, hear him, ye deaf, his praise, ye dumb, your loosened tongues employ. Ye blind, behold, your Savior come and leap, ye lame, for joy. Not only does God renew you and me from the inside out with his Holy Spirit, but he renews the world, this fallen world around us through his spirit and through his people. Look at the rest of verse six and verse seven. Waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand. You ever been to the beach in July? You ever you know, try to walk across the sand and you just, whoa, 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 gotta get to the water because it's so hot. The burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals, there's my band name again, copyright that for me, Logan. Where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes, 
Instead of a desert place with creepy animals, it becomes a, a, a bountiful, life-giving marsh full of, of life. There's a rapper from California named Propaganda who I've recently uh, heard about. He released a book and an album called Terraform. Terraform, I read a review that said that terraform is a verb often used in the context of science fiction, which refers to the process of transforming a planet to make it habitable and hospitable to human life. In his book, Propaganda essentially asks, if we already speculate in our fiction about terraforming Mars, what's stopping us as God's people from terraforming Earth itself? A place whose hab habitability is threatened every day. That's what God does through the gospel. He terraforms the world into what it was intended to be. What we have spoiled with our sin, he renews. How do we get there? Take the interstate. Look at verse eight. A highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. We know the way, the truth, and the life, don't we? Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. Even if they're simple and fools, no lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come up on the highway. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there safely in security on the highway. Christ is the way. He is the highway to the holy city of Zion where God's people dwell secure. What will it be like when we get there? Look at verse 10, the last verse. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy. You knew joy was going to be the last word shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Go back to that last part. Uh, 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 who we got up there? Esau. Uh, gladness and joy shall obtain. That's what the ESV says. In the NIV, it says they shall be overtaken by gladness and joy. That's really closer to what the Hebrew is saying. It's like a wave of gladness and joy just comes upon them and they're overwhelmed by gladness and joy, completely covered in it. If only we will trust fully in him, the Lord will bring us home with gladness, with singing. You know, some people are content with the worldly ways of this life. They're just content with the petty materialism, the rat race that pervades this culture. They fill their bellies, their minds, their egos, their bank accounts, with the salvations of this world. They don't want to think about what comes next, or they deny that there is anything that comes next. The famous atheist author Richard Dawkins wrote this in his book, uh, Books Do Furnish a Life. Imagine what it must be like to really believe there's a place called hell, a post-mortem torture chamber of unspeakable horror well, you will certainly, without any doubt, spend all eternity if you don't accept Jesus. Nashville author and pastor Sam Alberry replied to him, imagine what it must be like to really believe there's no such thing as justice, that all the inequity and evil of this world is certainly, without a doubt, unaddressed. Our God is a God of justice. He's a God who will make everything right in the end. 
those who aren't made right now will be made right. That penalty of sin will be paid either by Jesus or by us. The call is for us to follow the ways of the Lord. You have two choices and two very different outcomes. The trajectory of our lives now determines the trajectory of our lives for eternity. What are you betting your life on? Let's bet everything on Jesus Christ. He is willing and wanting and waiting to save you and to save me. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you are not a God who just glosses over things, but you really are holy. You really are a God of justice. And instead of giving us what our sins deserve, you have forged a way to make us right. Your perfect love and your perfect justice kiss at the cross of Jesus Christ. We thank you that you have made a way to make sinners right forever. That you give us the righteousness that Jesus earned with his perfect life. And you take all of our sin, all of our suffering, all of our shame, and you put it on his shoulders on the cross. And then you overcome death, the power of sin, by raising Christ to new life. And you raise us to new life. And yes, God, we still indwell this fallen flesh. We still indwell this fallen world. We still wrestle with cancer. We still wrestle with food insecurity. We still wrestle with injustice, with broken families. We still wrestle with dirty politics and power. We still wrestle with greed and pride and all these issues in our world. But God, we know that one day it will all end. We live in a hope, a living hope that is kept for us in heaven that will never spoil or perish or fade. God, we know that you are coming back to say enough that all the, the squabbling and infighting that we hear at the SBC convention, we pray we don't, God. But if we do, we know that you're going to come and say no more. No more reaching for power that the vulnerable and the marginalized will be fully heard and protected and seen. God, we pray that until that day, you would compel us to live in your way, to learn the path of holiness, to get on the interstate that leads to Zion, to get on the highway where your people dwell secure, where no jackals or ostriches or any other creepy thing can get to us. God, we know that in this world we will have tribulation, but we take heart because you have overcome the world through Jesus Christ and your Holy Spirit. God, we pray these things now in your name. Amen. I want to invite anyone here who's never put their faith in Christ for the first time, anyone who's never fully committed to Jesus as Lord. That means what, what you heard Major say, that Jesus Christ is Lord. That means he's master. That means he's the boss of your heart, your life, your body, your mind, your soul, everything. You heard Doyle do that a couple weeks ago in the Schlamps. They're here today as well. That beautiful public testimony. Maybe you've never been baptized. Maybe you've never followed the Lord's commandment to make disciples of all nations and baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Maybe you need to do that. Maybe you're ready to join Woodmont Baptist Church and say, this is where we want our membership to be as a part of this family of faith. 
You're never going to find a perfect church, and we're not one either, but I'm excited at what God's doing here. Uh, lives are being transformed. Uh, lives are being changed by the ministries of this church, by God's grace and for his glory. If you want to be a part of it, I'll be here to receive you. Uh, let's stand and sing our hymn of invitation now at this time. I want to invite everyone to stand. Don't leave this place without having dealt with the Lord.